Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code PODCAST for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. Hello, everybody. It's Lenny Murphy with another edition of the Green Book Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. And as usual by us, that means that uh, I have a guest. One day I will surprise you and we won't have a guest. I'll say us and we'll do some weird dialogue uh, or monologue, I suppose. But today we do have a guest. I am joined by Emmanuel Propst. Emmanuel, welcome. Lenny, thank you for having me. And uh, it's a great opportunity to connect with you and your community today. And thank you to the great folks at Greenbook for putting this nice podcast together for us. Well, thank you, sir. It's an honor to have you. So for folks who may not know you by name, why don't you give a little bit about your uh, your background and then we'll dive into the topic of the day. I sure will. So my name is Emmanuel Probst and I'm the global lead for brand thought leadership at Ipsos, which as many of you know, is the one of the largest market research agencies in the world. And I'm also an adjunct professor at the University of California at Los Angeles, where I teach consumer market research. And I also write books. And my latest book, Assemblage, The Art and Science of Brand Transformation, is coming out in a, in a few days now. And that is why we have you on as a guest. So, because we want to talk about the book, but but also, you know, overall, uh, it's kind of the, the general findings. Uh, now, I have to point out before we dive in, because I, I see your background, and that looks like the car from Starsky and Hutch. So, let's let's start there, why <laughs> you have a Starsky and Hutch car in your background. When I was... Uh... 10, 12, 13, so a child slash teenager, if you will. I used to love Starsky and Hutch, and I still love the show, and I really wanted to have a car. Eventually, years later, my brother-in-law bought that Ford Gran Torino. It's a 1968 Ford Gran Torino for me, so it sits on my bookshelf, and my dream is here in Los Angeles. You could actually buy a Starsky and Hutch Ford Grand Torino from the studios. It's a little known fact that the likes of Warner Brothers and, and Universal, they sell props from their movies. And I could potentially buy one. To have been told, I think gas mileage is going to be terrible. Insurance is going to be bad. Reliability is going to be disastrous. So let's just <laughs> keep on daydreaming with the Ford Grand Torino that's on my bookshelf for now. <laughs> <laughs> It makes an awful lot of sense. And yes, for, yeah, if, if uh, any of our listeners, if you don't remember Starsky and Hutch, you need to just go to YouTube and look up the opening of Starsky and Hutch because it's that classic over the hill kind of flying landing. Uh, so great. So great. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that car went through a lot of hell uh, on that show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, all right, so let's uh, let's dive in. Let's talk about your your book. So uh, tell us a little a bit about the the journey that you thought. You know what? This is a topic that needs uh, some more exploration, and how you've tackled that. Yeah. So 
my quest as a practitioner is to understand why do people do what they do? And you asked me to describe what I was doing before. And it, look, it's, it's great to read out fancy job titles to you. I think what's most important for our audience today, no matter where you are at in your career and the level of seniority, what's compelling in the market research industry is exactly this, is to understand why do people do what they do and be curious, always learn new things, new methodologies, learn from people, learn from consumers, from citizens, from patients, from key opinion formers, from elected officials, and of course, from marketers, advertisers, brand strategists. So that's really what keeps me going. And that's what I enjoy the most in our industry is to discover why people do what they do and help shape behaviors and attitudes for brands. So that is what has led me to invest in the market research industry. What I mean by investing is learn and develop and I continue to learn every day. And what led to the book is, well, my doctoral studies were in consumer psychology. So again, why do people do what they do? Really what led me to write this book is looking around me and there are so many brands and so many products and we're just overwhelmed here. The other thing is I noticed that people, and I'm using this word carefully, people, not consumers, people, people expect more from brands and products. And what I mean by this is you expect the product to deliver on whatever functional attributes it whatever the product must do for you, if you will. Beyond that, you want brands, you want products to do more. You want them to make a positive impact on society, on the economy. And importantly, I think you expect and you should expect brands to transform you. And what I mean by this is I expect those products to take me from who am I to who do I want to become? And we want brands to go well beyond just marketing products and transform people and the world they live in. That's the starting point for the book. Okay. The title of the book, Assemblage, then I assume is, is a reference to those elements, those components that help in that transformative process in the relationship between the brand and the consumer. Uh, am I getting that right? Or is there a, a deeper process? You got it. The title assemblage is a metaphor. Assemblage is a process you follow when you create a whiskey or cognac or wine. And in fact, Lenny, you mentioned off camera in the introduction that you moved to Kentucky. So <laughs> that's how a bourbon is made. Yeah, bourbon is made of corn and other cereals. And importantly, what gives a bourbon its distinctive flavor and identity is this assemblage of different alcohol and choosing from different barrels and different aging processes and so on and so forth. And as the assembler, as the technician, or I will say the artist in charge of putting together this assemblage, well, you're going to look for something that is both unique and distinctive and also something that aligns with your brand identity. And this metaphor applies to the world of building great brands. That is, we want to create brands that are unique, distinctive, that people are going to recognize, brands that are going to 
stand out, we want to do so by assembling from a wide range of personal and social and cultural attributes. And we do so in a dynamic fashion. And what I mean by this is brands evolve and evolve fast these days because brands are now in a constant dialogue with their audience. And the book shows you how to do this. The book shows you how to build brands that are unique and distinctive in a dynamic fashion so that they evolve with time and so that they transform people and the world they live in. And that's fascinating. It brings up a couple ideas. And as you mentioned, we were, we were chatting before we actually hit record. And I think there's a couple of cultural trends that uh, that impact this topic. And, and one is kind of the artisanal movement, or let's call it the creator economy. You know, there are so many upstart and emerging brands across all categories at this point. And many of those are highly localized. Some are becoming you know, regional. And of course, they're all trying to, to grow to kind of international. But I think often when in the research industry, when we think of brands, we think of Coke, Google, Ford, you know, the big, the big guys, you know, Procter and Gamble and all of their their brands. But the reality is for them, the competition now amongst people for not just their their share of wallet, but their their share of engagement, the emotional connection that a consumer can build with that brand at a product level is incredibly, incredibly diverse. You know, there's tons and tons and tons of options. So in that environment, what can differentiate in your perspective from, you know, the local artisanal brand of bread, you know, versus going to the grocery store and buying, you know, Wonder Bread or whatever, you know, one of the larger, uh, the larger brands. And what's that dynamic look like from a, a branding and positioning and marketing perspective? Three things come to mind reflecting on what you just said, Lenny. First, you said in the market research industry, we look at Coke and Unilever and Procter & Gamble and, and Google and the likes. And rightly so, because those are the big guys and they are good at making and marketing products. And of course, they inspire great methodologies for the market research industry. With that said, it's limiting, in my opinion, to obsess only about the big brands, because let's not forget that only 7% of us work for Fortune 500, 93% of America is small and medium businesses. Let's not forget that 99% of us are not one percenters. Let's not forget that 99% of us didn't go to the one percent, top 1% of universities. All this to say that we can learn a lot and we should learn from the likes of Unilever that does a beautiful job at building personal brands. We can maybe talk about it later. Let's also understand all the great things that emerge from small and medium businesses. And I would say importantly, how those small and medium brands can learn from the big guys. And that's also what the book is about. Sure, we can learn about the Dove Real Beauty Project. That's an inspiration for the industry. My mission, I feel, as a practitioner is also to shed light on the brands that spend literally $50,000 a year on marketing and do great things and manage to differentiate. So you spoke about the artisan movement and this personal relationship. Well, here's what's interesting. People are increasingly going back to something that feels more personal 
and establish a emotional connection with the product. And I'm going to give you an example, Etsy. Etsy is a web platform where you can buy goods from very small businesses and you're going to buy a mug or you're going to buy a lamp, something for your house. And those are artisan goods, basically. The reason why Etsy is so successful is, again, because of the uniqueness, the personal, the emotional connection between the product and the customer. Now, let me illustrate how this applies to IKEA. So, of course, Etsy versus IKEA, that's David versus Goliath, right? IKEA also recognizes that people need to develop an emotional connection with a unique product. The question, of course, is how do you create a unique product when you need to sell dozens of thousands of lamps across the world at $19 a pop? And the answer, I had the opportunity to connect with the former head of design at IKEA. And IKEA agrees with manufacturers, they have contracts, to create products that are not 100% perfect. What I mean by this is you're going to go to the IKEA store and you're going to look at a shelf that is full of $20 lamp, lamps. However, you will see a small bump on that lamp. And that small bump is, it might be two bumps or three bumps on the next one. And it can be no bump on the third one and so on and so forth. The point I'm making is that imperfect is perfect. The point I'm making is when your IKEA, ironically, almost counterintuitively, when you are IKEA, you're thinking, how can I emulate? How can I deliver this very personal experience that the small vendors on Etsy deliver to their clients? To sum it up for you, Lenny, what's important, whether you're IKEA or a very small retailer next door producing very local goods is it's not business, it's personal. And what I mean by this is people feel lonely and insecure in their personal lives. They feel overwhelmed with choices as consumers. They feel overwhelmed with technologies. And the key that marketers need to address is to personify those brands, to make them more human the brands, the organization, and their products so that they develop this emotional connection with people. I agree wholeheartedly. I'm sitting as you're discussing that, thinking through my uh, myself as a consumer. Right? And I definitely noticed that that trend overall. Although, and the IKEA example is interesting, and as is Etsy, because they create scale for these more imperfect or personalized products. And that seems to be the, the interesting world that we live in now. And I think of it as the, the platforms, right? Effectively, we think of IKEA as a retailer, but really they are a platform, as is Amazon or Alibaba or Etsy, Shopify. You know, those are all platforms that enable scalability for manufacturers, uh, uh, small, small manufacturers, small makers, small creators, YouTube as well, even though we think about content as a product. So, as an expert in branding, what are the the recommendations or the guides for the creator of the product when they are almost by default, in many cases, have an intermediary in their relationship with the consumer? And that, that intermediary is the platform, which becomes a brand in and of itself. So what are the things folks need to be conscientious of 
when there's kind of multiple points of contact and stakeholders involved in this brand relationship through the process of distribution and access, as well as through the manufacturing and creation of the more the personal relationship from a product standpoint. Well, those platforms, as you said, almost by default, act as the intermediary. My read, my advice is you have to work with the platforms and at the same time, you can make sure you develop your own audience and your own platform. Let me explain. I just got targeted with an email by Drops. It's a company I like. It's a DTC brand that does detergents, washing machine liquids, and those things that are usually bad for the environment. And the claim, the purpose from Drops is to provide me with these products in a direct consumer model and provide me with products that are respectful of the environment. All this to say that Drops works both ways. I can order from their website on drops.com, and that's a typical DTC model. Good news for Drops is there is no in-between, more margins and a lot more understanding of the consumer because they can accumulate more data. The limitation is access to an audience. So what Drops does is also deliver to Amazon Prime members. And of course, the good news here is to access a much wider audience. And the limitation is they have to pay Amazon handsomely and cannot collect as much data and develop as personal of a relationship with me as they would through their platform. Another example is things of, you can think of Harris Shaving or Dollar Shave Club. Those platforms, they sell through their website, yet to access a wider audience and to move volume, they also partner with the likes of Target. Why? Because Target's the destination, even for or especially for millennial shoppers, and that's where you're going to get the product to be more visible and discovered. So my advice to those creators is go both ways. You need to develop your own platform, your own brand identity, of course, and your very own audience. You can also amplify your message and your reach through the likes of Amazon Target or if you're a creator, we spoke about YouTube, and if you're a writer, you can do so through Medium and so on and so forth. Here again, what's important, Lenny, is it doesn't matter how small you are or how big you are, this reasoning remains the same. Dollar Shave Club is now part of a big conglomerate, yet started as a DTC brand and now sells in store. And Drops, I don't know how big Drops is, but it's a pretty small company at this stage, and they do both. And we can speak about someone who creates mugs and lamps and sells on Etsy. And here, same concept. You can use Etsy to access a wider audience and also to scale your operations in terms of supply chain and shipping and billing and payment and accounting and all those things. And meanwhile, you should develop your own, literally your own mailing list, your true fans, the people that are going to follow the brand, wait for your new products to come out and buy those products almost systematically when you'll have something new to bring to them. All right, all of you budding entrepreneurs who may be in the audience, um, there you go. You just got a crash course on business strategy from, uh, from Emmanuel. 
I want to pivot just a, a little bit because there's a few concepts that you bring up in the book. And one of the things you outline is why we relate to antiheroes, villains, and saviors. Now, how do those concepts relate to the idea of brands? Well, I could take guess that there's certainly, <laughs> you know, depending on your relationship uh, to uh, to Tesla, for instance, Elon Musk, uh, he could be potentially all three of those things. <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but anyway, take it outside of, uh, of bashing on Elon. Talk about those concepts, please. Yeah, I will lean back to two things we covered, Lenny. One is I want to develop a brand that is personal, meaningful, emotionally relevant to people. And two, a brand must transform me, the consumer, the individual, and must transform the world I live in. So in order to do this, how do we do that? Well, one way to do this is to develop brands through archetypes. An archetype is, for example, a hero, a very classic archetype, Batman, Superman. Think of those superheroes. They're compelling because they have superpowers. As such, it's great to see them in advertising because they feel very empowering. The limitation, if you will, is they're not very relatable because it's fair to say that most of us we're not born with superpowers. <laughs> we cannot fly, can we? So even more so compelling than those traditional heroes are the anti-heroes, villains, and saviors. This is because those characters are more relatable and we're able to identify with them. So I'll give you some examples. Anti-heroes, think of Tony Soprano, think of Don Draper. Villains, you can think of Dr. Evil, for example, in Austin Powers. Saviors, you have some modern day saviors. Elon Musk would love to be one, at least that's his positioning. I'm gonna save Twitter and I'm gonna save the world. Jeff Bezos is a modern day savior, whereby to save planet Earth, we must live on planet Mars. So those heroes, villains, saviors, anti-heroes, they're all relatable and they're all sympathetic in their own ways, simply because as individuals, we are not perfect. We might do things that are heroic at times. We're also flawed and challenged, which makes someone like Don Draper very relatable, for example, to professionals in the marketing industry. So the way this translates in branding and in advertising, well, first and foremost, Let's not forget that the hero is always the consumer. It's always the target audience, and it is not the brand. The brand is only here to facilitate this transformation from who am I to who do I want to become. So it's super important for marketer researchers listening to us today to always remember that you are not the heroes. The brand is only here to facilitate this transformation. And how to do this? Well, you can position your audience as heroes, anti-heroes, villains, and saviors. They will like it. And one brand in the US, for example, that does it well is Equinox Health Clubs. Equinox had this tagline for a while that was Equinox made me do it. In those ads, you will see white collar professionals jumping fences and getting arrested and getting in a fight, all things that are not okay by conventional social standards, if you will, 
So as such exposed their flaws, their bad side, if you will, but made it okay because Equinox, the brand, facilitated this transition into an anti-hero for them. You know, that's fascinating. I was sitting there thinking, I'm, I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell. And if you've ever read any Joseph Campbell, The Power of Myth and that series and the the archetypes, right, of where I was going. And what occurred to me is that, so the role of the brand is as the narrator around the hero's journey, but the consumer is the hero. Yeah, you got it. The individual writes her or his story. The brand is only here to facilitate this journey. That's what a good brand is about. A good brand is about empowering people to become who they want to become and do so in a meaningful way and in a way that's inspiring for them. You know, boy, that is a fascinating take that I have never heard anybody express before. So <laughs> that's, that's really cool. And my second thought, this is a consumer is, I run through a list in my head of, well, how many brands do I, do I participate in that help me achieve that? I mean, I guess I'm a hero when I have plenty of Northern toilet paper, at least in, uh, in 2020. Right. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, <laughs> but I don't know if I think about things consciously that way, but I recognize that there's probably truth to the, to the concept. So if that is a unconscious process versus a conscious process, what does that mean for, uh, for brand building? Yeah. I mean, I think if, if somebody came out to me and, you know, Coke, said, we're going to make you a hero by making sure you have plenty of Coke. My cynical component would be, yeah, whatever. No, you're not. I'm just going to buy Coke. You know, there's kind of this uh, almost, at least for me as an individual, as a consumer, this uh, this pushback to something like that. But at the same time, if I think about the, uh, you know, the marketing of, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll use Coke again as an example, it does. I'm, I'm an Atlanta native, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these emotional connections and levers. And, you know, I'm inclined to when I, I'm a, I'm a Coke person, not a Pepsi person. You know, that is maybe not a defining trait of my identity, but it is part of my identity. I'm, I'm a Coke guy. I'm not a Pepsi guy. So what is the fine line that a brand marketer must walk in being this narrator, but without veering into this process where the consumer goes, well, no, you're not. You're just Coke. What does that look like? Yeah, I'll take two examples, one very big and one very small. So you spoke about Coke. We can think of Unilever and we can think of the Dove Beauty Project and the most recent campaign that's around the reverse selfie. What Dove does in this campaign is to show a younger audience, we call them millennials, Gen Z, global youth, you know, this, this younger audience bracket. And by younger, I mean, realistically, 12 years old to 25, right? And the campaign is about, let me show you that there is no point photoshopping too much, wearing too much makeup, and appearing on social media as someone you're not. Let me, Dove, show you that you are naturally beautiful and transform you in that way in an authentic and non-superficial way. I'm going to transform you 
not into some model that's unrelatable, but into revealing your true beauty. How do I do this? By making you aware of that process, by shepherding you through that process. Oh, and by the way, by providing you with great products that are going to make your skin smooth and make you beautiful effortlessly without using Photoshop. So that's a great example of a brand that only supports this quest to beauty, raises awareness around what true beauty is about without overstepping and without becoming condescending and telling people what to do. It's revealing what true beauty is about, not dictating what beauty should be in sharp contrast with what Victoria's Secret used to do five, seven, ten years ago, telling the world, this is how you should look if you want to be sexy and attractive. That's an example of a really big brand that our listeners today, our community, we can all relate and we're all familiar with the likes of Unilever. And let's go very small now. And I'm going back to Kentucky, Lenny, because that's where you're, you're based. And think of a local bourbon distillery. That's not necessarily a big operation. And of course, there is some bourbon in Kentucky, but there are also many independent craft artisan breweries and bakers in our local communities all over the country. And here what you can do is, well, this is a small batch bourbon that we produce, or it may be a small batch beer, yeah, same or whiskey or what have you, same concept. Oh, and maybe for this top-of-the-line item, the master blender wrote his or her name on the label. It's handwritten on the label. And there is a number on this bottle. Oh, and maybe if you want to further engage with the brand, you may visit the distillery and we'll show you the production process. And I know for a fact that I believe it's Jim Beam that just invested, I read, $40 million into the visitor's experience at the distillery to bring people to the distillery and understand how the product is made. Oh, and now that you're at the distillery, maybe I'm going to qualify you as an enthusiast, someone who really likes bourbon, and I'm going to propose that you invest $1,000, $5,000 into your own barrel, and you will be able to write your name on this barrel, and me, the distillery, will send you updates every quarter or what have you, every 10 weeks about the craft process for this bourbon. And this is an example how that small distillery that produces a few thousands or dozens of thousands of bottles uh, a year, and this is not Sundari Beam, this is not Johnny Walker, this is not the big guys, right? Is going to develop this meaningful, personal, human connection with you and enable you to become now by letting you write your name on the barrel and attend the production process and the blending process and all that. I am transforming you in who you want to become. I'm empowering you to become a bourbon enthusiast, a connoisseur. I'm educating you about the process. I'm inviting you to become part of this process. So here we just looked at two examples, one ginormous, that's Unilever, one of the largest advertisers in the world, 
And the other one is your local bourbon distillery. Once again, when I say bourbon, replace this with chocolate, bread, coffee roaster, beer, whatever's happening in your local community for our listeners. Yeah. Now, Manuel, since you've brought up bourbon multiple times, so I am not particularly a bourbon drinker, but I do know that here there is a distillery trail. It is a tour where you go from each small distillery. So here's my formal invitation. I think you should come to Kentucky and we'll go on the distillery trail and uh, investigate uh, those things. Um, There's also a store that I recently discovered that is a Kentucky bourbon store. And the entire store is themed with nothing but things related to bourbon brewed in Kentucky. So uh, <laughs> there we go. Just on my side. <laughs> all right. All right. Come on down. Uh, well, you know, we're, we're expecting a, a winter storm today. So wait, wait just a little bit. Let's get through this. But so last topic is you do this chapter in your book, The Imperative for Responsible Consumerism. And we touched on this, uh, this concept a little bit before we, we went live. So tell me a little bit about the role that that plays into brand building today. Yeah, here's the deal. For years, we've been consuming too much. There are too much skews on the, on the shelf. Go to any grocery store. You want to buy popcorn. You see 150 skews. At the end of the day, by the way, as a consumer, you stick with one or two, the ones you're used to. And the same applies to most categories, just too much options, too much advertising, too much products, too many brands. That is a concept that Barry Schwartz defined in his book as the paradox of choice, meaning the more options you have, the fewer brands you select. So the imperative for responsible consumerism is to say that after years of overconsumption, we aim to buy more responsibly. We want and we need to keep products longer. We also need to give these products a second life once we dispose of these products, as opposed to just trash them. And what brands must do is really implement those responsible business practices, those practices that are considerate of the environment and brands should encourage people to repair, to recycle, to resell their products. And brands can do so while making a profit. Let's be clear, I'm not advocating for brands to give everything away. As much as I like the Patagonia example of Patagonia giving the the company away, frankly, I think that's anecdotal. It's very inspirational, but I think very, very few brands will follow suit. And I'm not necessarily saying that brands should follow suits. It's fine to make a profit. We're in business. Let's do so responsibly and let's make a positive impact on people and the world we live in. And we can do both. And examples of brands that come to mind, Lenny, I'm thinking of Levi's that has a used program. I'm thinking of Lululemon, where you can bring back your gently worn, gently used items to the store and these items will be sold on a separate rack and you receive a voucher for store credit. And really everyone wins. Those pants are getting a second life. They also become accessible to people who may not have bought brand new Lululemon yoga pants. And for you who returned or is selling back this product, these yoga pants, now you have a store credits to spend more in store. So the existing customer wins, 
the brand wins, of course. The new customer wins because she or he will be able to enter the category and to access a brand that was otherwise not accessible. And last but not least, the environment wins because we will not trash those yoga pants. We will give them a second life. Okay. That makes perfect sense. And again, personal experience of now living in a very rural location, we have quickly discovered you don't waste anything. Don't throw that away. That will come in handy at some point. So, Emmanuel, anything else that you want to touch on and communicate to our audience as we kind of wrap up? Yes. I want to share with our audience that now it is your turn, which is the conclusion of the book. The conclusion it's called Now It Is Your Turn. I want to say that my message and this book, but my message in, in general is to empower people. What I mean by this is you don't have to be a C-level executive at a Fortune 50 to make a difference. In fact, you can be six months into the job or even working as an intern in a market research agency or advertising, branding, marketing consultancy and make a great impact. That's because you understand culture. That's because you're curious about the world around you. And that's because you're able to come up with new ideas. So my message to our community, our listeners today is lean in, stand out and do not be shy. When I wrote the book, I kept thinking of David Ogilvy and David Ogilvy, whom arguably created modern advertising, used to say, senior executives don't have the monopoly of your great ideas. Junior people and interns and anyone can come up with ideas that are valuable. In our organizations, I would argue that very often our younger contributors, most junior contributors, they're so important again because they understand culture, they're attuned with culture. So to our listeners today, I'm saying lean in, stand out, do it, voice your ideas and make a name for yourself. I love that. Now I've got to ask, is that a principle and value that you're building into the culture of Ipsos? 100%. On my team, listen, I have some very talented methodologist people with 20 plus years experience in advanced analytics and I rely on them every day. Their knowledge is crucial. That is what makes the difference at Ipsos, of course, is the skills and knowledge of those individuals. And at the same time, we systematically include in client relationships, people that joined us a year, 18 months ago, people who've graduated from college a year ago, six months ago, two years ago, again, because they bring this cultural perspective and this honesty, if you will, I encourage everyone on my team, I have this policy that is to say anyone and everyone on my team can put 30 minutes on my calendar. And the format is simply share with me what is working, what is not working, how you can make a difference and how I can support. From there, you can voice anything and everything you want now, I know that it might seem intimidating for, again, very junior people to communicate directly with someone who is seemingly senior. Uh, I'm, I shouldn't sell myself short. I'm, I guess I'm, 
I'm senior, but what I mean by this is there's no point having any barrier. It's so important to them, but it's so important to me. That's the learning experience. Again, it's win-win or no deal. It's important for them to communicate what keeps them up at night. It's as important, if not more important, for me to hear what is really going on in their mind and in their world. I love that. Tons of wisdom shared today, uh, Manuel. Thank you. Um, I, I think I speak on behalf of our listeners. That we, I try to make all of these uh, podcasts have unexpected gems and treasures, and this is one that I think certainly lived up to the expectation there. So thank you so much. How can people reach out to you directly, and uh, how can people get your book? Thank you. My name is Emmanuel Props, and you can find me on LinkedIn at Emmanuel Probst. <laughs> it's as simple <laughs> as this. And the book is available on Amazon for pre-order. And by the time we'll air this podcast, I guess people will be able to receive a book within uh, 24, 48 hours through Amazon Prime. And of course, it's also available through Barnes and & Nobles and Targets and airports and so on and so forth. The book is called Assemblage, the Art and Science of Brand Transformation. Again, my name is Emmanuel Probst, and I will tell our listeners, do not hesitate to reach out to me. I read my own emails, and I read my own LinkedIn messages. And if you have any questions, or if you want to connect, I will gladly do so and start this relationship with you. Oh, thank you. That is very genuous and genuous, genuine and generous. That's what I was trying to say. I was combining two words. That's great. Thank you so much. So I think that's uh, that's it for today. Any final things you want to impart before we sign off? Well, Lenny, I just want to thank you again. Uh, we've known each other professionally for, for many years, and I appreciate the work you do to advance our industry and also help educate our community and what Green Book does to support and, again, educate the industry. So I think you guys, sincerely, I think you guys are making a difference, and I appreciate that. Oh, well, well thank you. Um, the, uh, the check's in the mail. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that wasn't fishing for final thoughts. Say something nice about me and us, but I do appreciate it very much. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, on that note, I need to give thanks as well. First to our producer, Natalie, uh, to our editor, James, our sponsor. And then finally, finally, the biggest thanks of all to our listeners. Without you, I wouldn't get to sit here and have cool conversations like uh, we just had. So thank you. That's it for this edition of the Green Book Podcast. We'll look forward to joining you on another one soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Join Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. 
nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.